This is the podcast for Woodland Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. We are maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. We hope you enjoy the message, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, look us up at woodlandpres.org. Thanks so much. May the Lord bless you. Such a gift to be with you all this morning. Thanks for letting me come up. I drove from Birmingham hit the road at 6 a.m., so if I fall asleep in the pulpit, just forgive me and consider the service done at that point. But actually, no, I'm, I'm fine. So grateful I feel called as a missionary, actually just like you, uh, to spread the gospel into new territories. And for me, this is new territory. I've always served as a pastor in large established churches, aside from the very first church I served, which was a church plant. So in a way, I'm kind of coming back to my first love And the goal of our church plan is especially, as you'll kind of hear the heart in the sermon, which I think is hopefully not only my heart, but God's heart, and therefore your heart, uh, would be that we find these people that are falling through the cracks of cultural Christianity down here in the South and what's going on with that. And so in many ways, the presbytery, you, the other churches in our region, are a network of mother churches for this new church that is being established right in the middle of Birmingham. If you know the city, I live in Cahaba Heights, which is like right in the middle of all the suburbs that are just to the south of the city. And the hope by God's grace is to have an established church that will be able to plant other churches in the city, in other regions, and to do God's missionary work there. So again, really thankful for the joy and the privilege of being here to bring God's word to you. So if you would, would you please stand with me? as we hear from God's word in Job. It's on page 389 in your pew Bible, but we're starting Job chapter 2, starting in verse 7 through verse 13. Hear God's word. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard all of this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, and they made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And then they saw him from a distance, and they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great." Thank you, God, for your word. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that as we hear this heavy word, that you would do what only you can do with your word, that you would do two things. Show us our need for Jesus and give him to us. Amen. In a way, this morning, I'm going to be preaching on the whole book of Job, but have no fear. Length of book does not equal length of sermon, okay? I know what you're thinking. Church planter is so starved for people to preach to that he's going to preach forever. Not me. 
instead of going verse by verse, actually, especially with Old Testament stories like this, of narratives that happen to individuals, sometimes we need the whole journey to understand what it's saying. We've highlighted and read a few verses, and in a little bit, you'll see why. But for now, I want to tell you about my experience at Church Planters Assessment. I don't know if you know that we do stuff like this, but church planters, before they go off, in order to maybe evaluate whether we're suited to do this crazy call of abandoning all and starting a new church, we go to things like assessment centers. And so I came to one here in Memphis several months ago. Uh, assessment does a lot of things for you. I took some psychological tests, and so did my wife. They evaluate your marriage. Then they tie you to a chair and demand that you preach the gospel seven different ways in 10 seconds. And then they set you loose in a city to survive on $1 for three days just to prove that you can raise support. I'm just kidding. None of those things really happen. The psych tests do and some of those other things. But one of the things that they do ask us to do is to prepare a 10-minute sermon of a kind of summary of the, the first sermon that we'd preach on the first Sunday that our church launches. And after a lot of prayer and reflection, it sounds crazy, but I chose Job. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, dude, your church plant's totally going to fail, right? If that's how you're going to start your church, nobody's going to come to your church after Sunday one. And probably true unless the Holy Spirit comes and invades Birmingham, right? But I think Job might be one of the best books of mission and evangelism in this cultural moment. And I want to give you two quick reasons why. First of all, it's all about suffering, and the more I spend time amongst people who don't know Jesus, or more likely down here in the South, people who are disconnecting from God and distancing themselves from the church and from faith, the more I think that one of our best evangelistic moves will be to simply learn how to minister to suffering people and how to do that well. A lot of people are quietly suffering right now, actually especially people who maybe because of Mars Hill podcasts or Hillsong documentaries or reports about widespread sexual abuse coming out of big denominations, they're becoming deeply suspicious of the church and of Christianity for good reason, actually. Maybe they're weary from a Christianity that seems more concerned with policing the world than proclaiming and demonstrating the love of Jesus. Maybe they're tired of the self-righteous moralism, the gospel-less messaging that basically just sounds like, stop being bad and start being good. That's what many think that the church exists to do, is to sort of nag culture in that way. So that's the first reason I think Job is a timely book for this missionary moment. People are suffering, and Job is willing to talk about it. In fact, some say that Job is the most ancient book in the Bible because of the way Job's written and the things it does address and doesn't address. Some people think this is a really early reflection on God and a human being. And it's interesting that maybe one of the most ancient books in our Bible starts with a relationship with God in the context of suffering, the perennial human problem. But second, tucked away into this wonderful book, is a subtle but significant critique of a lot of the ways that you and I tend to get it wrong when it comes to reaching people in our present moment. I want to talk today about what it means to be a friend and to be a Christian and to be a witness. You know, I live in a home where everyone's talking all the time. I have four kids, 
And if you've grown up in a large family, you know that if you're sitting around a dinner table together, it's just loud. And I guess this thing happens. I didn't grow up in a large family, but now that I'm the father of one, I'm witnessing sort of what happens in the culture of your family when you've got a lot of people that have personalities that need to showcase themselves. When you sit around a table, everyone starts one-upping each other and the volume's going up and everyone's interrupt. We have this huge interrupting culture in my home, and no one really can finish a sentence before someone's jumping on them and talking. And it just seems like everyone's talking and trying to get a, get a word and to the point where it's like my wife and I this past summer had to have an intervention with our family about what it means to just sit there and actually let someone finish a sentence and then maybe just maybe engage them in what they're saying rather than sort of one-upping them and doing that. And we're all guilty of it and we needed to collectively repent and say, we got to do this family culture different because all we're doing is talking and not listening. And you know what? Social media is like this too. I mean, you've got Facebook and supposedly Facebook set up so that you can post something and then have a kind of dialogical interaction, right? You've got a post, and then you've got replies. But have you noticed the reply culture these days on just about any social media platform isn't so much creating a dialogue as it is the Hicks family dinner table, shouting louder than the last person, trying to stand on a, on a higher platform and say something with, with more vigor. You know, it's not so much that I'm interacting with you, I'm trying to say something that becomes the next post. And that culture has sort of invaded the way that we communicate with one another. Kind of everybody's talking and nobody's listening. And the church has followed suit, you know. We too have jumped on social media and in the fray of everybody talking all the time in an effort maybe to get out the gospel and to share Jesus with people, we've said, let's just have a bigger megaphone. Let's just shout louder. Let's make our, our videos better or our, our phrases more clever or something that kind of sits above the fray and shoots Jesus out into that public in a way that can be seen and heard. And, you know, that's for a good reason. We do have something to say. We don't have ourselves to promote, but we do have a Jesus worth telling the world about. But you get the perspective and the sense that all of culture right now, just like the Hicks home, is a place where a lot of people are talking and very few people are actually listening or at least listening with any kind of depth. And with all this output, all this communication, I wonder what it would be like if the church did the shocking and unconventional thing in this cultural moment. What if we spent more time just listening? Just listening. Here's one good thing that listening does more than anything. In our minds, in our minds, good listening can often transform our perception of someone from being two-dimensional to three-dimensional. You see, every time we meet someone or encounter someone, we encounter their two-dimensional self, right? And it's a natural instinct that we have to make immediate evaluations and calculations in our head of what kind of person they are. Totally normal. It's part of the, the human neurology, the way we recognize faces and our sociological instincts. And we don't always know it, but we often get pretty specific in our evaluations. We start to imagine what their politics are, what their spending habits might be, what they do in their leisure time, all from our first encounter with them or first conversation with them. We take in data and we draw conclusions. It's natural, it's a social instinct. We'll draw these conclusions maybe from their accent, 
or from the car that they drive, from the clothes that they wear, or how much melanin they have coursing through their skin, or from what they talk about, or from the way that they talk about it. And here's what I've discovered. Rarely can I, in the first encounter, or even in a second or third encounter, understand them in anything beyond two dimensions. And here's the negative side of that. When I see them in 2D, I simplify and therefore distort who they are. I don't really know them. I've yet to encounter their three-dimensional self. But when I do discover their three-dimensional self, I always, always, always find myself having made some error in judgment, some distorted premature evaluation. When they turn 3D, they complexify. They, well, become more human, actually. Just think about your good friends or your spouse. And remember back to the first time that you met them. It's sort of a funny dialogue that we happen to have with our good friends or our spouse, what your impression was when you first met them. And we can laugh about it and joke about all the misconceptions or about the deep insights that we did have, but we always have something off. And in a sense, we can go back to that moment and say, you were pretty two-dimensional to me as well, because that's how relationships work. You know, our current modes of interaction and our current pace of communication in society has created a context where we are connected to a lot more people in two-dimensionality. We're connected to a lot more people now, but they're two-dimensional connections. And this has consequences for missions and evangelism. And again, that first point is that good listening helps transform the person in front of us from two dimensions to three dimensions. But two, when we finally see someone as, two dim- as three-dimensional, in other words, when we're listening well, because that's what it takes, that extra third dimension that often comes into focus is many times their suffering. Job is one of the books of wisdom. But most commentators on this book will tell you that Job is actually kind of like anti-wisdom. The other books of the Bible that we classify as wisdom books, like Proverbs or Ecclesiastes, tend to take on the characteristics of other ancient wisdom literature. Whether or not you're familiar with the Bible, maybe you've taken a world lit class or an ancient lit class somewhere along the way, and you have some faint memory of those ancient Near Eastern or ancient Greek bits of wisdom sounding like short, pithy sayings that offer decent advice for how to live the good life. Sayings like this, actually, Proverbs 17, 13, if anyone returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. Or Proverbs 19.3, a man's folly brings his way to ruin. Proverbs such as the biblical ones really are true most of the time. They're good advice. They're good wisdom. That's what Proverbs are. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom books like this often read as little formulas. They often speak in two-dimensional terms. Behave well, good things will happen to you. Behave bad, And bad things will happen to you. And though that's often true, in steps the book of Job, the anti-wisdom wisdom book, where a guy behaves well and bad things happen to him. 
This is actually one of the predominant messages of the whole book and just might be its point. Sometimes that suffering and pain in this life in the face of a good and all-powerful God confounds all our usual categories and it just doesn't make sense. Sometimes suffering as we experience it is just unfair. Job exists to remind us of the failure of conventional wisdom and pat answers and simple solutions. Our lives are often too complex, actually, for slogans and bumper stickers and those terrible and horribly untrue phrases that we see plastered all over our gyms. Like, there's no such thing as failure, only learning experiences. Oh, really? Tell that to pastors who end up having podcasts documenting their learning experiences, right? As I was saying before, we're at a cultural moment where just as there's been a failure of pat answers to the hard questions of suffering, so there's kind of been a failure of easy, formulaic Christianity. Christianity that tends to lean more Proverbs, less Job. More simplified, easy answers, less messy and incomplete answers. You know, there was a time maybe in America where that worked. But I'm sensing the time has passed. I just also sense a growing number of Job's out there in my community. And Birmingham and Memphis are really similar. A growing number of sufferers who, for whom the simplicity of typical Christianity just doesn't work. Whether it's because it's too tangled in politics or too uncaring in the face of real social issues or reactive or maybe too moralistic or behavior policey or too reactive in denouncing before truly listening or too motivated from fear rather than acting out of instincts of love like Paul and Jesus encourage us. And that's why it's actually Job's friends who interests me. Earlier this year, I was at a pastor's retreat, and the speaker pointed out from this text something kind of funny, but mostly painful, honestly. When Job's life fell apart, his friends came around, and here's what the text says that we read in verse 13. Job's friends sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. After reading this verse, the speaker commented, and you've probably heard this before, the problem with Job's friends is that they eventually opened their mouth. And that's what the rest of this book unfolds, actually, is their very mouthy response, very Proverbs-like, I might add, to just why Job is suffering as though they're speaking for God. Hmm. Mouthy response as though we're speaking for God. I, as a member of Jesus' church, resemble that remark. And don't get me wrong, the scriptures are clear. The Bible itself is a communicative document, and it demands communication. At the center is its main message, which it calls good news. News must be spoken, as I'm speaking now, right? But it seems in this day and age, more than ever, people need to feel seen and heard before they will ever listen to any news that you're going to give them. I wonder if it would have been different for Job if his friends had just sat there and wept with him and then sat there some more and then sat there some more 
I wonder if Job's friends could have sat there long enough so that Job could move in their eyes from being two-dimensional to three-dimensional. In the same way, I wonder if it might be different for us, the church, if in this age of constant talk and communication, we took the shockingly unconventional posture of drawing near and listening well and weeping with those who weep, mourning with those who mourn. You know, curiosity, it's a wonderful virtue for the Christian serious about reaching people for Jesus in our present age. If you watch the show Ted Lasso, Ted's greatest virtue is his ability to not prejudge but simply be curious. There's a particular episode where he, in a sense, displays and teaches on his philosophy of what I call his pastoral ministry of loving others. And you find that that curiosity is something that the show portrays in its narrative as being something that transforms people, kind of like the way God's grace transforms people. Asking questions in a non-judgmental, empathetic way might be one of the most important parts of the evangelistic process that may have been forgotten. It's the lost art of Jesus, actually. The lost art of listening well enough to find the point of emotional resonance and understanding. The ache that disables them. Touching the wound that cripples you. Asking questions often helps you to navigate the windy path from the bristly surface of someone toward the deep chambers of their heart, often where suffering resides, actually. We often think that love always takes the form of action. But sometimes love, especially in our day and age where everybody's talking and no one's really listening, just might take the form of deep hearing. Not doing or saying, but receiving and hearing and understanding. Asking questions is actually the path that Job's friends didn't take. When they opened their mouth, they began talking at Job, over Job. Interestingly, and this may be painful for us to hear, actually, they began using their biblical knowledge to put Job in his place, or in the spirit of what Christians often say we do today, to speak the truth in love. But notice what all this conventional wisdom did. It only served to confuse and confound Job and to drive him away. In many of my conversations with non-Christians and former Christians and Christians distancing themselves from the church and hanging on by a thread, this is what I often find going on. Oftentimes when you and I lack the patience and curiosity, we are in effect taking a person's three-dimensional problems and trying to shove them back into a two-dimensional space and it doesn't fit. And then the discomfort of that force fit actually drives them away from you and away from God. Curiosity is a form of God-shaped love because it says, I will come beside you and sit with you in this mess. The problem with Job's friends was that they began speaking for God instead of letting God be God. They transgressed the boundary between the creature and the creator. Many times in our efforts to communicate the love of Jesus Christ to someone else, we can transgress this same boundary. 
We let the anxiety and impatience of wanting people to change, wanting people to get unstuck, force us into a false belief, I am responsible to fix them. How many times have you and I shared about Jesus from that place? Of course, we don't say it like this, but our actions betray deep down that I am responsible for this person's salvation. Just like Job's friends were so sure that they spoke for God that they were responsible to lead Job to the truth about himself and about God. But fixing people is actually above our pay grade. Thank God. You know, we Reformed Protestants of all Christians should know this. We believe in what we call the doctrines of grace. We believe that justification happens by faith alone, and that by, by faith alone we mean it's totally a gift of God, 100% by the work of God alone. We believe that salvation is all God and no us. And yet somehow there comes that moment where we get impatient with God's timing. And we act as though all that stuff about God doing all the work in our salvation is bogus. For you theology nerds, we become functional Arminians or functional Pelagians. And sometimes for the hurting person, for the person with tons of questions, when we speak too soon like Job's friends, we force their 3D problems into that impossible 2D space. And the pain and the discomfort of that force fit is so strong, the pressures in that confined space so great that they burst out away from you, away from the church, and away from God. They're like a ketchup bottle that's squeezed so hard that the lid finally pops open and they're splattered all over the walls of the earth, never to be gathered back again. You know, I want to be clear. For the Christian, there's eventually a time to speak, to clearly offer the words of life, to tell of the comfort, love, and satisfaction, and wholeness found in Christ and in Christ alone. I don't think what's attributed to St. Francis is right when it's said that he said, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. It's always necessary to use words. To quote the Apostle Paul, how will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Yeah, preaching is actually supposed to be a good word, life-giving word. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So the urgent question for us, then, is when? When am I finally supposed to speak? I'm going to give you a very dissatisfying answer. Only the Holy Spirit knows. Only the Holy Spirit knows. But the good word is that those of us who are busy listening rather than talking actually have our ears open, not only to the person right in front of us, but to the God who knows all things, to the Spirit who knows the mind of Christ, who knows the heart of the individual, and will, in his power, make that connection obvious when it's time to make that connection. And you can trust him. He's good and faithful and in you and with you. The Spirit will guide and lead. You know, this ministry of listening, this ministry of curiosity, we could call it, the ministry of just sitting there with someone, inhabiting that three-dimensional space with them, it is, I think, a deeply Christian thing. And here's why. It's exactly what God's love for us looks like. When God the Son became incarnate, 
When Jesus took on flesh, he showed his willingness to become like Job's friends when they started out, to plop down with us in the dirt of our suffering and in the manger of our filth. The God who actually knew everything about us, the God who already saw us in three dimensions, didn't despise drawing near, looking us in the eyes and asking questions Questions like, and here I'm quoting Jesus, so listen to your Lord ask you these questions that he asks. Why are you so afraid? What has you worried? Do you want to be healed? What is it that you really want? What do you want for me to do for you? Why is your heart so hard? Do you want to get well? Maybe some of you are actually hearing Jesus ask your heart these questions right now. When God took on flesh, when God became a human being, he proved himself to be the kind of God committed to listening to just sitting there, to not saying anything. And there's a particular moment in the life of Jesus, the God-man, that is the archetype of this kind of ministry, the ministry of just sitting there and not saying anything. It's his crucifixion. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah described the crucifixion with these words. He was oppressed and he was afflicted and yet He opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers silent, so he opened not his mouth. The gospel writers pick up on Isaiah's observation when they recount what they saw on Good Friday. Mark, for instance, says that the high priest interrogated Jesus and finally said, probably out of exasperation, have you no answer to make? But Jesus remained silent and made no answer, Mark says. There are many reasons why Jesus was silent that day. But I've read enough Bible to know that this is true. Jesus was silent at his crucifixion because he was busy listening to you. And trust me, I'm not giving you some cool, poetic, devotional talk. Jesus was quiet because he was listening to you and sitting in your pain, the pain that you want to hide when you come to church and look nice. He was listening to that. He wasn't going to talk. And he certainly wasn't going to squirm out of his crucifixion. He and the Father dealt with that the night before. He was going to sit there, and he was quiet, because when he heard your pain, your pain, he was so moved by it, his heart was so magnetically drawn to your hurt and your pain, that he committed himself to doing something about it because he had the power. Nothing was going to stop him from going to the cross for you. His ministry of just sitting there with you moves into action. He was so moved by your burden, your problem, your suffering, that he said, 
I need to take that on. And I will bear it with them. And I will bear it for them. You know, no one needs friends like the friends of Job. But everyone needs a friend like the friend of sinners. And maybe, just maybe, sinners loved and befriended by Jesus, a.k.a. the church, a.k.a. you and me, will learn by God's grace to assume in greater measure the imitation of our Lord in the ministry of just sitting there. But even if we don't, Praise God that Jesus is committed to just sitting there, listening, seeing us, and hearing us. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Woodland Presbyterian Church, maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. Again, if you'd like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at woodlandpres.org. Thank you very much, and God bless you today.